I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading historians. Today, I'm interviewing Philip Taubman, a fine historian who lectures at Stanford about his new book, In the Nation's Service, The Life and Times of George P. Schultz, which came out January 10, 2023, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on April 17, 2023. Enjoy. Welcome to the wonderful Pecan Room for this special program. Uh, I know most of you, but I'm Talmadge Boston, and honored to be part of this program. I always want to begin by thanking our sponsors who make these events possible. Uh, If you are here as a guest, it's because your sponsor wants to support history and programs like this. They cover the cost of the, the room, the breakfast, the book. So if you're a guest, be appreciative to your host, and maybe they'll invite you back. Uh, Our guests, uh, excuse me, our sponsors today, uh, starting with, uh, I'm partial, I admit, uh, my law firm, the Shackelford Law Firm, our wonderful managing partner, John Shackelford, is here. The uh, Crow Foundation, which is instrumental in in getting these books. Uh, The SMU Cox School of Business Alumni Association, Kevin, my friend Kevin Knox and his guests, Robbie Briggs and Briggs Freeman. Where's Robbie? Great. Uh, Overland Partners Architectural Firm, Robin Blakely and his friends here. Swinnerton Construction, Jeff Blakely. Where's Jeff? And his friends here. Uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Byron Carlock. Uh, Security National Bank, uh, James Landon and his team here. And a new sponsor, USI Insurance Services. Who's here from USI? Back there. (laughs) Sorry about that table placement. That's what happens when you get here late. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, you'll learn the next time. Uh, Anyway, uh, today's a special day to to learn about uh, one of history's really great people who I don't think is sufficiently appreciated. But Philip Taubman's book, I think, is going to change all that. Uh, George Schultz was the Secretary of State uh, during the Reagan presidency. Before that, he was the uh, Secretary of Labor, the head of uh, the Budget Office, and the Secretary of Treasury during the Nixon uh, presidency. So he's one of, what, a handful of people? or Two. Two people who have held four cabinet positions. Uh, Philip Tubman, the, the author, uh, knew George Schultz well. In fact, George asked Philip to write his biography. It's similar to the programs we did a couple years ago where James Baker uh, opened his world to Peter Baker and Susan Glasser and Evan Thomas, the Sandra Day O'Connor's family, opened their world, but having absolutely no editorial control. That's how much George Schultz trusted Philip uh, with his research, with his interviews, and so forth. Uh, And and this is a great uh, final product. Uh, Philip is uh, at Stanford, where he is a lecturer in the Center for International Security and Cooperation. Uh, He's a graduate of Stanford. Uh, Before he uh, went to Stanford as a lecturer, he spent 30 years 
uh, with the New York Times as, as a journalist and, and an editor. Uh, he's written previous books uh, on international affairs, one on cold warriors, another on the Eisenhower presidency and the uh, U-2 uh, space espionage. And he's now working on his next book, which will be on Robert McNamara. I can hardly wait uh, to read about that. I found out yesterday, not only is Philip accomplished in the world of international affairs, his brother has written leading biographies of both Khrushchev and Gorbachev. So uh, please welcome Philip Tubman. All right. All books, as a fellow author, I know uh, there's strategic decisions involved. One of them is your preface. Your preface opens with a quote from Mikhail Gorbachev about the importance of both Reagan and Schultz in winning the Cold War. Now, Reagan has obviously gotten his fair share of the credit for helping to end the Cold War. Schultz is largely unappreciated, at least in my mind. What's your perspective on, on why it's taken a while to gain an appreciation for Schultz as Secretary of State? Well, for, first of all, thank you, Talmadge, for organizing this, and thank all of you for coming. You, you Feel know, free to turn your chair around. Yeah, it's a real, for someone who's a book writer, it's a solitary business. You know, you, it's kind of like being a hermit. Uh, you kind of disappear for years uh, doing research in libraries, and then waking up every morning, at least in my case, you know, to, to write uh, by yourself. Uh, so it's kind of, it can be a kind of lonely existence. And then when the product is done and you come to an event like this, I just uh, I can't tell you what a great feeling it is uh, to see so many people here interested in George Schultz. So thank you so much. So Talmadge, uh, I think... Schultz never got the attention he deserved, probably for a couple of reasons. One was the giant uh, presence of Ronald Reagan, uh, kind of a, a really, I think, one of the great American presidents uh, who dominated uh, his term in office. Uh, secondly, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, who became Soviet leader uh, midway through the Reagan presidency. And it was Reagan and Gorbachev uh, who had the uh, impulse uh, to try to wind down the Cold War. And so George was, was in service to Ronald Reagan, and he often would say people would come up to him and talk to him about his foreign policy, and his answer was always the same. I don't have a foreign policy. President Reagan has a foreign policy, and I'm here to help him execute it. So there was a, a modesty about George Shultz that I think was unusual. Uh, he didn't seek out the limelight. And then after he retired, uh, he, the presidency ended in January uh, 89. He came out to the West Coast, set up shop at Stanford, and, and did all kinds of wonderfully foresighted things holding conferences on various subjects, uh, things like the threat of uh, global pandemic. I sat in his uh, conference room at Stanford three years before COVID hit uh, during a morning of discussion with leading uh, scientists about the threat of coming pandemics. 
so I think, you know, he, he was just unusually modest, uh, didn't seek out the limelight. Mm-hmm. Now, he had an amazing life. He died a couple of years ago at age 100. Right. Uh, but he was a scholar, uh, Princeton undergrad. Uh, then he served in World War II as a Marine, saw combat, got his master's and his Ph.D. at MIT, was a professor at MIT, then became a professor and ultimately dean of the graduate business school at the University of Chicago. And so he was recognized at a pretty early age as, as one of the country's leading economic experts. And that caused him to be put on uh, councils and task forces by Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, uh, and uh, LBJ. So did any of those three presidents have any significant impact on George Shultz with his service under those three. Yeah, they did, interestingly. So Eisenhower, he came down in 1955 from MIT to work as a staff member on the Council of Economic Advisors at the White House. Arthur Burns was the chair of the council at the time. That's a name most of you know. He later went on to be Fed chair. Uh, And so Shultz talked about how he understood that Burns could be a mentor to him. And indeed, he looked for ways. Uh, he figured out that at the end of the day, Burns liked to kind of kick back a little in his office and, and talk about policy issues. So Schultz figured out how to present him with material late in the day. So Burns would say, well, you know, George, why don't you uh, come have a seat and let's talk? And they would be uh, having a conversation for an hour or so. So he Arthur Burns was a mentor. What he learned from Eisenhower, who did a briefing for the staff one day about uh, what possibly could happen if there was a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. That certainly registered with Schultz. And and Eisenhower told him, as he often told people in those days, you may have all the plans, the best plans possible uh, to wage a war, but when the first shot is fired the plans all go up in smoke, basically. And, and so you, you really have to think ahead uh, about what you're going to be doing. And then he had, he had a wonderful uh, exchange with uh, Lyndon Johnson at one point. Uh, he was in the Oval Office talking to the president about an economic issue. And Johnson, I guess this is very Johnson-esque, said to him, uh, so George, let me tell you something. Uh, if you have a good idea and it's your idea, it's not going to go anywhere. But if it's my idea, <laughs> it, it, it will work. <laughs> so uh, Schultz took, took, took that in, and I really think he acted with that in mind when he was working for Reagan because he basically you know, left it to Reagan to get credit for everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, then, of course, came the, the Nixon presidency. And uh, we all know the story of the, how the Nixon presidency ended with Watergate and disgrace and resignation. As Schultz saw Watergate unwind, did he make any effort to distance himself from Nixon's shenanigans and the people around him? So, you know, his involvement with Nixon is interesting. Uh, uh, It was a kind of uh, wary relationship. Nixon 
believe that George Shultz was the smartest member of his cabinet, maybe other than Kissinger. Uh, and he trusted him on economic policy issues. You could see, as Talmadge indicated, he went from labor secretary to the first OMB director, then to treasury secretary. But Nixon never entirely trusted uh, Schultz on political issues, did not think he was basically expedient enough. Uh, And so as Watergate uh, kind of unfurled, he became very impatient with Schultz, Uh, And the particular issue that made him impatient uh, was Schultz's resistance to using the IRS, which reported to him as Treasury Secretary, uh, to investigate Nixon's opponents. I think a lot of you here may remember the phrase, the Nixon enemies list. Uh, It was a list of people Nixon uh, who opposed Nixon. Most of them were Democrats. Uh, John Dean, the White House counsel, Uh, took it over to the Treasury Department, handed it to the IRS director, a gentleman named Johnny Walters, and said, the president wants you to investigate all these people. Walters, who was a kind of upstanding gentleman from South Carolina, uh, balked at this suggestion, said, that's not the way we do business here. He went to Schultz and said, Mr. Secretary, this is what the White House is asking us to do. And Schultz said, hell no, we're not going to do that. So they put the enemies list literally in a safe uh, in Johnny Walters' office, and that was the end of the enemies list. But it wasn't the end of Nixon's pressure on Schultz to use the IRS because he circled back shortly thereafter uh, through John Haldeman. Remember Haldeman and Ehrlichman, the chief aides to Nixon? It was particularly Haldeman and Ehrlichman who put pressure on Schultz to use the IRS to investigate Larry O'Brien. Larry O'Brien was the chair of the Democratic Party. If you remember how Watergate started, it was the break-in at the Democratic National Committee uh, to see if bugs that had been placed in Larry O'Brien's office, he was the chairman of the DNC, were working or could be replaced. That's when the burglars got caught And that's the beginning of Watergate. So Larry O'Brien, who later went on to be the commissioner of the National Basketball Association. The Larry O'Brien Trophy. Yeah. uh, He was a terrific uh, Democratic Paul, an operative, who had worked very closely with John F. Kennedy. And Nixon worried about him because he thought that he was the key to Democrats challenging Nixon for re-election. So they leaned on Schultz and Walters to investigate uh, O'Brien, who, after he left the DNC job, had signed a consulting contract with, uh, of all people, Howard Hughes, the billionaire recluse who lived at the top floor of his casino in Las Vegas and didn't see anybody because he was, it was like, you know, a preview of coming attractions with COVID. Uh, You know, he was a germaphobe. And he was terrified that if he met people, he'd get sick. So Schultz succumbed to this pressure. They investigated uh, Larry O'Brien extensively, uh, and they never found anything uh, illegal that he did. So, and he told Arthur Burns during this period they would meet periodically. He clearly understood that Watergate was a crime, that Nixon's involvement was corrupt, uh, but he stuck by him. Uh, He left the office of Secretary of the Treasury in May 
1974. Nixon resigned in August. So he actually, at the time he retired as uh, Treasury Secretary, he was the longest-serving original member of the Nixon cabinet. Mm -hmm. So despite this long-standing relationships, major responsibilities, of course, after Nixon resigns in time, he tries to rebuild his image. He tries to re-engage in presidential leadership with his successors. And yet Nixon behind the scenes, was not exactly uh, a fan of Schultz. And in fact, talk about what he did to undermine Schultz's uh, government service. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. So uh, Reagan's elected. He's thinking about who he's going to put in his cabinet. Uh, and Schultz is on the short list. How would he not be? He's a loyal Republican. He has already served in three cabinet posts. Uh, but Nixon fearful somehow that Schultz would become Secretary of State, has a private conversation with President-elect Nixon and says... Uh, with Re- President-elect uh, Sorry, sorry Reagan. with President-elect Reagan, uh, and says, don't appoint George Schultz as Secretary of State. He knows nothing about foreign policy. He knows nothing about U.S.-Soviet relations or arms control issues. Uh, He favored the appointment of Alexander Haig, who had been his last chief of staff at the White House and had been a NATO commander. So Reagan appointed uh, Haig, and and Haig flamed out. So when you go through the Schultz papers at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, which I had an opportunity to do, uh, one of the uh, incentives that I had to do the biography was when he came and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. He said, I'll give you exclusive access to my papers at the Hoover Institution. It's a massive collection of materials. Uh, and in those papers, uh, there's a, a number of letters from Nixon. Uh, one of them uh, was written at the time of Schultz's confirmation hearing as Secretary of State. Uh, and Nixon wrote him this very flattering letter saying, of all the cabinet nominees I've witnessed over the years, your performance before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was the best. So here he's privately lobbied against his appointment, and then he's praising him. And then a little bit later, this was even more astonishing to me, uh, there's a letter that he wrote to Schultz saying, it's come to my attention uh, that some people are saying that I uh, advised President Reagan not to appoint you as Secretary of State. I've looked at my records, Nixon said. Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> Such as politics, I guess. Yeah. Well, let's now move to the Reagan presidency. I mean, here's George Shultz, distinguished economist, both as an academic and cabinet positions. And after Haig flames out, he's named Secretary of State. What had been his foreign policy experience before he had that position. Negligible, almost nothing. Uh, You know, he was involved in international economic issues, uh, but importantly and critically, actually, he had traveled to the Soviet Union as Treasury Secretary. Uh, And it was while he was there on one of these trips that he came to realize something that those of us who worked in the Soviet Union, I've spent three years there working in the New York Times Moscow Bureau, What you understood when you came to the Soviet Union for more than a few days was that essentially it was 
uh, a developing country with a massive nuclear arsenal. Uh, and what George saw on his trips led him to believe, basically, that at some point the Soviet leadership would want to negotiate to reduce tensions, uh, to reduce the massive investment that the Kremlin was making in defense forces. And you could see that uh, in terms of the consumer goods in the Soviet Union. Uh, they were so meager. Uh, my wife and I would go out shopping, and you know the, the stores were literally, the shelves, shelves were bare. Uh, and if you went to, for example, to look for fresh vegetables, the only thing available were potatoes uh, and cabbage. Uh, there was literally no meat uh, to be had. Fish, forget it, fresh fish. I went to Nahotka on a trip which was on the, on the Soviet, at that time, Pacific coast. Uh, and, you know, it was a big fishing port uh, for the northern Pacific. And, and I asked people there, I said, well, if, um, you know, we're now, it's a country of 11 time zones. We're now like 7,000 miles from Moscow on the Pacific Ocean. I'm really excited to get some fresh fish haven't seen a fresh fish dish in Moscow in a year. I assume we can get some in Nahotka. No, sir. Uh, all the fish is processed and canned. Uh, so what Schultz saw uh, on these visits was how backward the Soviet Union was, uh, how they needed to rethink where they were investing their money. Uh, and then there were uh, other occasions that really hit home to him. His wife went to a Soviet hospital. She was a nurse in World War II where he met her out in the Pacific Theater. And she came back from the hospital visit and said, George, you can't believe how primitive the medical care here is. And I could see that myself when I went uh, touring Soviet medical facilities. It was incredibly backward. Uh, he negotiated uh, in the Nixon administration with Alexei Kosygin, who was the Soviet Premier, the number two official under Brezhnev. They negotiated about, about Soviet grain purchases in the United States. And Schultz came to believe that Kosygin negotiated in good faith, and he could see after they signed the grain purchase agreement that they kept their word on, on the agreement. So that made a big impression on him. And then lastly, and I think very importantly, he went to Leningrad and his host this kind of uh, salty, very uh, Stalinist uh, government minister, took him to the, to the cemetery in Leningrad. Uh, and if you ever go to St. Petersburg, go to the cemetery. It is really a powerful experience. It's not like going to Arlington or the cemetery at Omaha Beach uh, uh, you know, in France. There are no headstones. They're just mass graves these huge mounds under which there are buried literally tens of thousands of men and women who died during the 900-day siege of Leningrad. And so Schultz is walking down with this minister between these mounds, and he suddenly realizes that the translator has stopped translating. And he looks around, and she's weeping. And then he sees that the minister is weeping. And he says to himself, oh, my goodness, I mean, these people, they're just like us. You know, I lost comrades in battles 
fellow Marines in the South Pacific. They're mourning their dead the way we mourn ours. And so he went up to the big platform that overlooks this cemetery, and he did a very crisp Marine salute and paid tribute to the tens of thousands of Soviet citizens in that cemetery. And that made a big impression on his hosts, and it made a big impression on him. So by the time he became Secretary of State, even though he knew almost nothing about U.S.-Soviet relations, he had an instinct that we needed to talk to these people, not just prepare to go to war with them. Mm -hmm. Now, on the one hand, it's a great honor to be chosen Secretary of State. I'm sure he had high expectations, but he doesn't have the job very long before he realizes how challenging it's going to be because of all the infighting and the turf battles. Secretary of Defense Weinberger, the CIA Casey, uh, Gene Kilpatrick, the UN ambassador, and others. Talk about the challenge of working through all this White House conflict before he's really in a position to do his job. Yeah, the conflict was uh, epic. Uh, I came down to Houston to interview uh, Baker about all of this because Jim Baker had, as you may, all of you probably know, he started out in the Reagan administration as White House Chief of Staff and then became uh, Treasury Secretary. So he had a front row seat for all of this, uh, and he said it was the worst infighting he had ever seen. Uh, And he actually was an ally of Schultz and tried to help him, as did his aide and comrade uh, Mike Deaver, and most importantly, Nancy Reagan, uh, who came to George's rescue, basically. But what George ran into were ideologues. And he was not an ideologue. He had an ideology. He was uh, as fervent and loyal a member of the Republican Party as you would find in modern American history. Uh, But he was not an ideologue. And so in his view, we've got to do something to try to reduce the tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. Because if we don't, there could be a miscalculation. I mean, you all know we came very close during the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, to a nuclear war. Uh, And so he wanted to do what he could do, and the men around him wanted nothing to do with that, all the people you just cited. And so he struggled. He became Secretary of State in July of 82 after Haig flamed out. By the way, he was confirmed by the Senate by a vote of 98 to nothing. Think of all the confirmation battles in recent years. There's been nothing like that uh, in, in recent years. It harkens back to a different time in Washington. Uh, so, uh, you know, he, he doesn't really know the president, uh, and he's flummoxed. Here's a guy, you know, who served in, in the Nixon White House, which was rife with all kinds of machinations, Right. And, and maneuvering, and yet he seemed lost in the Reagan administration. And every time he would go over to meet with, he thought, a private meeting with the president, he'd get over to the Oval Office or the cabinet room, and it, all his opponents would be there. And he, he couldn't figure out uh, how to deal with that. Uh, and there's a wonderful document at Stanford. It's really, when I looked at his papers with his approval before I decided to do the book, This was the document that made it clear to me that 
that I could do the book, I should do the book, and that the book would, would be able to tell an inside story about the Reagan administration. His executive assistant, Raymond Seitz, kept a diary uh, secretly. And so every day he would jot down everything that was going on with George Shultz, and Shultz would vent with him when he came back from these meetings. Uh, and Seitz would have it typed up, and when he left the office two and a half years later to become ambassador to Great Britain, he walked out of the State Department with it in his briefcase. It's like 800 single-space type, single type pages. It's the unvarnished inside account of the combat within the Reagan administration. And what you see in these pages is this extraordinary resistance uh, and the fighting that went on. And there was a bad history, unfortunately, between Weinberger and Schultz that played out, and Casey and Schultz. It, it's really a, 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 an amazing story of what goes on behind the scenes when there are core, fundamental policy conflict in a presidency. And Reagan didn't seem either capable or interested in refereeing it in the first few years. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the points you make is that the power of a secretary of state depends on his relationship with the president. We have a history of people, secretary of state, who didn't have good relationships with their president, who were failures. On the other hand, those who were the James Bakers, the Henry Kissingers, ultimately the George Schultz, became great secretary of state because they worked so well with their president. So, so talk about uh, that relationship. You said they really didn't know each other much at all, and yet in time, uh, Reagan ultimately decided Schultz is the guy. He's the guy. Right. So it's, if, you, if you turn the clock back uh, to uh, 1974, uh, as I said, Schultz leaves the Nixon cabinet. Uh, he moves out to California uh, to become a senior executive at Bechtel, the international construction company. Uh, and he takes up a position as a faculty member at the Stanford Business School. Uh, and he gets a call from Governor Ronald Reagan, who says, why don't you come over to Sacramento? Uh, and so he has lunch with Governor Reagan, and it's the first time they've met. And Reagan interrogates him uh, about the federal budget and about the federal government. Already, you know, in 1974, thinking ahead to his uh, uh, aspiration potentially to become president. So Schultz leaves that meeting impressed. Reagan then asks him to serve on an, uh, as head of an advisory committee during his presidential campaign uh, in 1980 uh, on economic policy issues, which he does. And candidate Reagan comes to George's house at Stanford, and George brings together a kind of stellar cast of people from the Hoover Institution at Stanford, fellow Republicans, including Milton Friedman, uh, and they spend the evening talking about economic policies. And Schultz is basically blown away by Reagan because he says these economists came after him with a lot of detailed questions about economic policy issues. And he said Reagan didn't already always agree with what they wanted, but he defended his views in a, in a very uh, powerful and effective way. So that made a big impression on Schultz. He comes to Washington as Secretary of State, and he knows the president. 
but he knows them mostly through economic issues. And so he tries to build this relationship. It takes a long time. It's really only eventually with the uh, uh, intervention of Nancy Reagan that he's able to break through. There, there was an amazing blizzard in Washington in February of 83. I lived there at the time. And those of you who know the layout in Washington and Georgetown, there's Wisconsin Avenue, which rises up from the Potomac up the long hill of Wisconsin Avenue. Uh, 26 inches of snow fell, I think. The city was absolutely paralyzed. People were skiing down Wisconsin Avenue. Not a car was moving. So the Reagans were stranded at the White House. They couldn't get up to Camp David, where they'd been planning to go. Nancy Reagan invited the Schultzes to dinner at the White House, deliberately thinking that George was the one person around her husband who could help him create a legacy as a peacemaker because she feared the other aides to the president were creating a legacy of confrontation, not peace. So she invites them over, and for the first time, there, Schultz is having a one-on-one -on -one with the president. And so based on that, they began to form a relationship abetted by Jim Baker and Mike Deaver, who were also supportive of Schultz. At one point, Mike Deaver controlled access to the Oval Office, and at one point, he called Schultz and he said, you know, George, I know you're having trouble getting in to see the president on your own. If you need to see him one-on-one, -on -one, let me know. But interestingly, Schultz didn't want to do that initially because he was a very orderly person. And he believed that good decisions are made in an orderly way. And he was hesitant to do an end run around the national security staff at the White House. But eventually, he did. And so what was arranged was a weekly lunch, just George Schultz and the President of the United States. And George said the first time to Reagan, shouldn't we invite Bill Clark, the National Security Advisor, to join us, who was an adamant opponent of Schultz. And the President said, no, George, I'd rather do this just with you. So that was the Nancy Reagan touch. And as they began to talk more, they began to realize that they shared the same outlook on the Soviet Union. Let's ease tensions. Let's do whatever we can to avoid nuclear war. And let's, look, you want to boil it down to its essence? If we can, let's win the Cold War right now, uh, which is really what Reagan wanted to do. I think Schultz looked at it more like, let's ease tensions. But the outcome thanks to the dismal state of the Soviet economy and to the foresight and enlightened attitude of Mikhail Gorbachev, that is essentially what happened. By the time the Reagan presidency ended, the, you know, the United States and its allies, in effect, had won the Cold War. Mm -hmm. During Reagan's second term, there were four summits with Gorbachev in Geneva, Reykjavik, Washington, D.C., finally in Moscow. And Schultz was actively involved in all four. Talk about the division of responsibilities as to what Schultz was doing compared to what Reagan was doing at the summits. So Schultz was a detail guy. He was the guy down in the trenches with his counterpart, uh, Edward Shevardnadze, who, by the way, was the perfect match for George Schultz. Many of you may remember this implacable Soviet foreign minister named Andrei Gromyko. 
He was in that job, I think, for three decades. I believe he'd started actually under Stalin. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you were looking for the, the sort of uh, uh, embodiment of uh, hardline, cold-blooded Soviet policy, it was Andrei Gromyko. So Gorbachev got rid of him uh, shortly after he became Soviet leader. And instead, he brought in this gregarious, warm, friendly uh, man from the Republic of Georgia. It's now an independent country, uh, Edward Shevardnadze. And so he and George bonded. And it, it was no accident, although their personalities turned out to be very well suited to each other. But what Schultz said when Shevardnadze was appointed, uh, I want to try to build a personal relationship with him. He had no relationship with Gromyko. It was just like a rob- Gromyko was like this robotic figure. And so before he met Shevardnadze for the first time, George says to his wife, Obi, I'm going to Helsinki. There's a 28-nation security conference. Why don't you come with me? The new Soviet foreign minister is going to be there. Let's try to get to know him and his wife. And that's exactly what they did. And it was an amazing scene. Okay, you imagine Finlandia Hall, this big auditorium uh, in Helsinki where 20, the delegations from 28 nations have convened. And it's an amphitheater-type hall. And because the organization of the delegation seats was done in French, uh, the United States, Etats Unis, was in the front, and the Soviet Union was in the back. So Schultz comes in with his delegation and his briefing books. He walks up to the American delegation desk at the front, puts his books down, turns around, and slowly walks up the steps. There must have been 30, 40 steps to nearly the last row where the new Soviet foreign minister is sitting, and extends his hand to greet him. A hush fell over the hall as everyone watched this gesture. And from that day forth, this amazing relationship was formed between the two of them. And I can tell you that the things that went on are hard to believe in retrospect. So at one point, uh, to uh, you know, show his affection, really, for Shevardnadze, they're meeting in Moscow, and Schultz comes in. Uh, he, loved, he loved to sort of do uh, you know, kind of music, musical kind of things. The United States Secretary of State comes into a meeting with the Soviet foreign minister, uh, and at the break at lunch, he starts singing Georgia on my mind. (laughs) You know, Shevardnadze is sitting there just startled. And then he brings in, Schultz brings in a delegation of three American diplomats who speak fluent Russian, and they do a rendition of Georgia on my mind in Russian. So this this just delighted Shevardnadze. Uh, and so these two men, they, they got together and they worked on the details that led to the summits. And I'll tell you one great story that kind of captures this. In a, it seems like a, a, a kind of meaningless anecdote, and it tells you a lot about Schultz. So the first summit, remember, was in Geneva, uh, and, and Reagan meets uh, Gorbachev outside. It's very cold. Reagan comes out without an overcoat, Gorbachev gets out of his big armored limousine. He's bundled up in a big coat and a top hat. And there's the older president of the United States, you know, looking younger because he's not wearing a big overcoat. So that really threw 
Gorbachev off at first, like, you know, I didn't prepare for who, where's the aide who told me not to wear a coat, basically. So they go in and they start uh, negotiating. And they go down to a house by the shore of Lake Geneva that Reagan had, uh, his advance team had spotted it. And when Reagan did a walkthrough of the negotiating sites the day before, they took him down to this little house by the, by the lake. And he loved it. Two armchairs, a big fireplace. He goes down there alone with Gorbachev and their translators. There's a fire burning in the fireplace. It's, it's, it's just this kind of wonderful atmosphere for the two leaders to talk. And they talk, and they talk, and they talk. And up, up at the house at the top of the, of the hill, their aides are waiting around, and they're looking at their watches, and the whole schedule of the summit is being thrown off. And Donald Reagan, uh, who at, at that point uh, was now chief of staff, uh, you know, Baker had gone over to Treasury. Donald Reagan says to his aide, shouldn't, shouldn't we get the leaders to move on? So, you know, this is a great maneuver, right? He didn't want to do this himself. He sends his young aide, the guy was like 25 years old, he says, go, please go and, and ask George Schultz uh, if we shouldn't uh, end the discussion down at the lake house. So this 25-year-old guy comes up to Schultz and says, Mr. Secretary, we're 40 minutes over time down at the house. Shouldn't, shouldn't there be, bring that conversation to the end? He says, what? What are you talking about? They're speaking. The leaders of the United States and Soviet Union are talking. Why would you interrupt them? Uh, so that was a classic kind of Schultz impulse. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the key issue, I think, as far as those negotiations went, was the uh, Strategic Defense Initiative, which Ted Kennedy called Star Wars, and how that became a real tipping point issue. It was why the the talks stopped at Reykjavik. But talk about Schultz's position, because as we all know, SDI was, was merely an idea. It was never put into effect, and yet the Russians were scared to death of it. So, so did Schultz endorse reliance on SDI as the crucial negotiating point? He did, but uh, only after he opposed it fiercely. Uh, so uh, this was typical of the way decisions were made in the Reagan administration. Uh, the Secretary of State was not brought into the planning for the Strategic Defense Initiative. He learned about it two or three days before the president was going to announce it. Uh, and as soon as he heard about it and talked to his technical aides at the State Department, he, he said, this is, in, this is a fantasy. You know, there is no way we can develop the technology uh, to defeat thousands of nuclear warheads coming in through the atmosphere at 15,000 miles an hour. Are you kidding me? You know, how can we stop this attack? Uh, and in fact, that was the correct technological assessment at the time. It's still correct today. We have missile defense systems, uh, but, you know, they're only capable of shooting down a limited number of incoming projectiles. If we ever, let's hope it never happens, we're in a, in a shootout with Russia today, you know, there would literally be thousands of warheads coming in our direction, and, and many of them would get through. So Schultz said, this is a crazy idea technologically. And from a doctrinal standpoint, it will completely upend the whole doctrine of nuclear deterrence, which was conveniently 
called Massive Assured Destruction, MAD, MAD. And the bottom line was, you know, if you attack us, we'll attack you. Your society will be extinguished. Our society will be extinguished. So let's not have a war. It was a kind of basic uh, uh, policy that in an odd way worked, although both countries spent billions of dollars developing these huge nuclear arsenals. So Schultz goes to Reagan and says, don't give this speech. Reagan resists, gives a speech. And Schultz then says, I'm all for it. So this was an indication of his loyalty. uh, And he became an advocate of SDI through the remainder of the Reagan presidency. And as you indicated, Talmadge, uh, it undermined the moment at Reykjavik in which Reagan and Gorbachev agreed for literally a couple of minutes to abolish nuclear weapons. When you go back and look at the negotiating uh, documents at at Reykjavik, the notes taken by the Soviet and American note-takers in that meeting, I know the American note-taker quite well, they sat there at this little (coughs) table uh, by the the North Atlantic in Iceland, and they literally talked about uh, abolishing nuclear weapons. And Gorbachev said, but Mr. President, uh, you, you can't, we can't abolish nuclear weapons while you're continuing to work on your missile defense system. How about we go to a 10-year understanding that you'll limit the development of SDI to the laboratory for 10 years? And Reagan said no. He handed a note to Schultz as the discussion was going on, said, George, am I doing the right thing? And George leaned over and said, yes, Mr. President. So it's interesting how that policy, I think, absolutely, there's no question, it drove the Kremlin, it drove Gorbachev to go to Reykjavik, seeking to reduce tensions, even to eliminate nuclear weapons, because the Soviets couldn't continue to pump the kind of money they were into their defense. But when Reagan had the deal on the table, he refused to cash in that chip. Uh, and so they did end up eventually with a, a, a deal, not at Reykjavik, but subsequently, to eliminate a class of nuclear weapons, the intermediate-range uh, missiles. So the story of SDI is an interesting one. It was a powerful incentive for the Kremlin, uh, but in the end, uh, Reagan believed so much in it, and I, I think this is a reflection of, of Reagan. He truly believed that this would save the world from a nuclear war, he wouldn't give it up. Mm-hmm. Now, the Reagan's second term wasn't all success uh, with these sim- summits and leading to the end of the Cold War. There was something called the Iran-Contra uh, affair, <laughs> scandal, whatever we want to call it. And that was largely orchestrated by the National Security Council leaders. And George Shultz and the State Department stayed away from it and, and didn't engage to their detriment, to the nation's detriment. Why did Schultz and his people not become more aggressive about getting to the bottom of, of what Oliver North and Poindexter and McFarland were doing vis-a-vis the not only arms for hostages, but more importantly, the, the, the money being sent to aid the Contras in Nicaragua. Right, which was illegal at Which the was time. illegal. Yeah, so it, I think this is an insight into, you know, people have strengths and weaknesses, we all do. Uh, and George had many, many strengths, obviously, but I think one of his weaknesses 
was a uh, failure to stand up at times for the principles he believed in. Uh, and Iran-Contra uh, was initially a, a, an example of that. So, uh, again, this is where the uh, Ray Seitz diary proved to be invaluable. Uh, Schultz's narrative about his role in Iran-Contra was consistent through his years of retirement, which is that he opposed it at every turn as soon as he heard about it. But when you go through the Seitz journal, you see before the Iran-Contra affair really became a coherent uh, operation uh, by Ali North and Bill Casey and others, there were intimations of it that Schultz picked up. And because the American diplomats in the Middle East were hearing these weird things about some guy shows up who says he's representing the Reagan administration and he's talking to the Israelis about trading American arms in the Israeli arsenal uh, for hostages that Iran has held through its proxies in the Middle East, which would, by the way, be a violation of the Reagan administration's policy of never negotiating for the release of hostages. And Schultz hears about this from one of the American diplomats in Israel, sends a cable back to the Secretary of State and says, who is this guy who says he's representing the White House? So Schultz looks into it a little bit and finds out that, you know, this is some weird thing is going on. And instead of jumping right into it at that point and say, I don't know exactly what you're doing here, but stop it, he didn't. In fact, what he said to Bud McFarlane, who at that point had become the national security advisor, because Nancy Reagan, by the way, had managed to get rid of uh, Bill Clark and move him over to become interior secretary. So Bud McFarlane is now the national security advisor. And he and Schultz start talking about this operation as it begins to take form. And instead of saying to Bud, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard of, stop now, he says, keep me informed. And so the operation begins to unfold. And then, and only then, does Schultz step up and say, wait, we can't allow this to happen. And so by then, it had picked up momentum. And most importantly, it had the total support of Ronald Reagan. And, and, and so it was, a, it was a, in some ways, it was a revelation to George Schultz. This is now, you know, we're talking about 1986, so the second Reagan term. I think it was at that point that, that Schultz came to recognize uh, that Reagan, when he invested in something, whether it was SDI or now the Arms for Hostage Arrangement, really believed in it and didn't want to let it go. And so it was like uh, something, Reagan had some kind of magical thinking that if we traded arms for hostages with Iran, he could bring peace to the Middle East. He could help influence the government, you know, this sort of theocracy in Iran, that he could lead them to enlightenment which was a mad idea, really, uh, at the time. It, it still is. Uh, and so he let it go, and George tried to stop it and basically failed. And it was only when he and the president discovered that money that had been 
provided by Iran in exchange for the weapons was being diverted to the Contras in Nicaragua against the uh, United States laws that Congress had passed. It was at that point that the Iran-Contra affair blew up into the scandal that we all know of. And that, you know, I think if it hadn't been for the fact that Nixon had come close to impeachment and had resigned as a consequence of Watergate, if that had never happened, I think the Iran-Contra scandal in and of itself might have led to impeachment proceedings against Reagan. But I think the Congress, including the Democrats, didn't want to go through another impeachment. And now, look, we have impeachment every few years, it seems. <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately for George Shultz, before his death, the main uh, news story uh, that had his name in it was this Theranos woman, Elizabeth Holmes, who you've read about, the big scam where you could prick your finger and, and get a drop of blood and that could diagnose everything associated with going on in your body, which proved to be a total fraud. And her biggest, or one of her biggest supporters was George Schultz, who brought in Henry Kissinger and all kinds of prominent people to invest. So again, we've, we just talked about what he failed to do vis-a-vis Iran-Contra. How do you explain a man as brilliant, successful as Schultz getting caught up in this fraud of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos? It's a heart. It's a really heartbreaking story, uh, and I watched it unfold. By this point, I was working on the book, uh, and I was spending a lot of time with Schultz and he and his wife, his second wife, who was this wonderfully ebullient uh, figure, uh, had staged all kinds of parties at their place that I was uh, invited to. Uh, and I kept noticing, you know, the George Schultz is in his 90s. His friends are in their 80s, 70s. Uh, I felt like I was the kid at the party. I was like 65, right? Uh, and I, I'm looking around the, the room at all these dinner parties, and there is this, uh, you know, a woman in her mid-20s uh, with a turtleneck, uh, and uh, attractive, and I'm, I'm thinking, who, who is she? I didn't know who she was. So after th- seeing this three or four times, I went to George's assistant, Susan, and I said, I don't know who that w- woman is. Is she a relative of George's? Uh, and he said, no, that's Elizabeth Holmes. That's the founder of Theranos. And so from there on, I, I kind of watched the dynamic, and I, I, I have to report that, you know, when she sat next to him on a sofa in his living room at these dinner parties, I think she understood that, that she was attractive to him. You know, it was a gap of like 60 years, right, an age difference. But he was drawn to her. I think he, he frankly was infatuated with her. And she played on this. She would kind of nuzzle up against him on the sofa. And, and I learned later, and it's in the book, uh, he asked his assistant to make sure that he spoke to her every day. There was a phone call with Elizabeth Holmes. So that was reason number one. Reason number two, and I think quite important, is that he believed in the technology at the beginning. George loved to look around the corner and see things that were happening. I told you about you know, his COVID conferences and things. So he thought this was a game changer. 
And so he was very enthusiastic about it. And he brought in, he created her board of directors, which, as you said, there wasn't a single person on this board who knew anything about medicine uh, and, and, and the diagnostics of blood testing. So I think he was trying to help the world, uh, you know, birth a new technology. That was another reason. Uh, third reason is she gave him... I think 2,500 shares of Theranos stock. He bought another 500, and, and before the company imploded, those shares of George's were worth $50 million. So I think all of that combined to blind him to what was really going on. And then the real tragedy was, okay, he made a mistake for whatever reasons, uh, and he's in his mid-90s, so maybe you can write all that off to some extent to, to a, a, his uh, advanced age. But when his grandson comes to him, Tyler, who went to work at Theranos at his grandfather's suggestion, comes to him and says, you know, George, this is a fraud. The tests don't work. They're covering it up. I've seen this myself. And now... He wouldn't tell George exactly what he had done, but after Tyler had gone to the authorities to try to get the government to look at what was going on and they weren't interested, he went to the Wall Street Journal and he talked to the journal reporter and the journal reporter's writing stories about the fraud at Theranos. And now Elizabeth Holmes has hired the David Boys law firm, the famous David Boys of the, you know, the election recount in Florida. Uh, and Boys, who plays hardball, has hired a private investigator to surveil Tyler. He's threatening to sue Tyler for defamation. Tyler goes to his grandfather and says, help, help, help. And what does Schultz do? He says, I can't help you. In fact, he has David Boys's lawyers upstairs waiting to talk to Tyler. They come down. And I believe they had told George, and you know, I don't, th- I don't think he was that far gone cognitively, that they were going to sign a deal with Tyler that would bring this conflict with Elizabeth Holmes to some kind of settlement. Instead, they come down from the bedroom upstairs where they've been waiting. They come in and they put papers in front of him that basically are a cease and desist order to him. And instead of hugging his grandson, and saying, I get it, Tyler, I'm going to help you, he refuses to do anything further. Uh, And it was Charlotte, his second wife, who kind of comes to the rescue and basically kicks the boys' boys lawyers out of the house. Uh, But, you know, it was just heartbreaking to see a grandfather reject the entreaties of his grandson for help on an occasion like this. And I know there was some effort to reconcile before George died, but it was not a complete reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to end this interview on that downer note. (laughs) What I do from time to time with with historians whose work I particularly (laughs) like is ask them to read a brief passage, and this is the final rap on George Schultz, which I hope you'll remember more than the Theranos story. So, Philip, read read that passage. No doubt, Reagan and Gorbachev deserve primary credit for winding down the Cold War 
and George H.W. Bush and Gorbachev for bringing it to a tranquil end. But it was Schultz who saw that the anti-communist belligerence and military buildup of the Reagan administration had to be coupled with creative diplomacy. It was Schultz, through marathon negotiations with Shevardnadze and Gorbachev, who enabled Reagan to engage the Kremlin rather than just threaten it. Absent Schultz's patience and resilience, it seems unlikely that Reagan could ever have overcome the chaotic conflict within his national security team. And were it not for Schultz, it is hard to imagine how the ideological fervor of Reagan's first years as president could have given way to the pragmatic policies of the second term. Jack Matlock, who worked closely with Reagan and Schultz, first as a White House aide, later as ambassador to the Soviet Union, said of Schultz's role, quote, essential would be too mild. I cannot imagine relations with the Soviet Union developing the way they did had it not been Secretary, had Schultz not been Secretary of State at the time. And then I close with my own comment. He truly devoted his life to the nation's service. Fabulous. Okay, we have time for, anybody have a question in the audience? Yes, Mark Langdale. So you're right, uh, he's beloved at, at the State Department. Uh, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the answer in a second, but the, the best symbol of that I think is when he died. There was a memorial service for him at Stanford University, and uh, four secretary, living secretaries of state came to deliver eulogies, Henry Kissinger, Condi Rice, and Jim Baker, and then Tony Blinken, the sitting secretary of state, a Democrat, came out to deliver a very warm eulogy about George Shultz, and it was all about how greatly he was had been admired at the State Department. Uh, and the reason he was admired is that he turned to the State Department for advice rather than bringing in a, a group of outside aides. Ray Seitz, this gentleman he appointed uh, to be his executive assistant, was an experienced diplomat. He surrounded himself with experienced diplomats rather than political appointees. And he treated everybody with respect. And the best illustration I can give you of that, and I think it, it really answers the question with an explanation point, is Jim Goodby was an arms control negotiator at the time, an ambassador. And one day, uh, Schultz brought him over to the White House to meet with the president. And they come into the Oval Office. And as all of you have seen over the years, some of you have probably been in the Oval Office, uh, and you've certainly seen these meetings on TV, where the president sits in a wingback chair in front of the fireplace, and the guest of honor, the senior person in the room, uh, sits in the other wing-back chair, and then the aides are arrayed. The aides, these are all cabinet members and things. They're arrayed along sofas, uh, you know, with a coffee table between them. They come into the Oval Office, and Goodby heads for the sofa. And George says, no, I want you to sit in the wing-back chair. And so he sits in the wing-back chair as the guest of honor. He was so touched by that. And, of course, the word of this moment 
spread like wildfire through the State Department. That's why they love George Shultz at the State Department. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? All right, well, we're so glad you came. Uh, if you haven't gotten your book signed, come up and uh, Philip's here to sign them. But uh, hope everybody has a great day and enjoys the book. Thank you. Thank you. After reading Philip Taubman's terrific new biography of George Shultz, it definitely moved the needle on my appreciation for him. It made me realize that he's among our top Secretary of States over the last half century. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.